You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. In connection with our text this morning, which comes from Revelation chapter 11, let us turn to the Old Testament. First of all, we're going to read from Ezekiel 40, verses 1 to 7. In the 25th year of our exile at the beginning of the year on the 10th of the month in the 14th year after the fall of the city. On that very day, the hand of the Lord was upon me and he took me there. In visions of God, he took me to the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain, on whose south side were some buildings that looked like a city. He took me there and I saw a man whose appearance was like bronze. He was standing in the gateway with a linen cord and a measuring rod in his hand. The man said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and pay attention to everything I am going to show you. For that is why you have been brought here. Tell the house of Israel everything you see. I saw a wall completely surrounding the temple area. The length of the measuring rod in the man's hand was six long cubits, each of which was a cubit and a handbreadth. He measured the wall. It was one measuring rod thick and one rod high. Then he went to the gate facing east. He climbed its steps and measured the threshold of the gate. It was one rod deep. The alcoves for the guards were one rod long and one rod wide, and the projecting walls between the alcoves were five cubits thick. And the threshold of the gate next to the portico facing the temple was one rod deep. And then if you have time today, you can read the rest of that particular chapter. But let us turn also to Zechariah 4. There, once again, in Zechariah 4, we read the word of the Lord. Then the angel who talked with me returned and wakened me. As a man is wakened from his sleep, he asked me, what do you see? I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lights on it, with seven channels to the lights. Also, there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. I asked the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? He answered, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I replied. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What are you, O mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of God bless it, God bless it. And the word of the Lord came to me, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. And then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Who despises the day of small things? Men will rejoice when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range throughout the earth. Then I asked the angel, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? Again, I asked him, what are these two olive branches beside the two golden pipes that pour out golden oil? He replied, do you not know what these are? 
No, my Lord, I said. So he said, these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. In our series of sermons on the book of Revelation, we have come to chapter 11. Let us turn to Revelation 11 then, the verses 1 to 14. John writes, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshipers there. But exclude the outer court, do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the water in the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake. And the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, I understand that there was some measure of disappointment last Sunday when we had a guest minister and I did not climb on this pulpit to preach on Revelation chapter 11. And disappointment, why, you ask? Well, because Revelation 11, as you have noted, is filled with scary stuff. And what better subject to preach on seeing that the next day would be Halloween. Halloween and scary stuff go together. To which I replied when told this, don't worry, there's always next Sunday. And so here we are. 
It's six days after Halloween, and we are into truly some scary stuff as we continue to make our way slowly through the book of Revelation. Revelation 11, in some ways, is like a horror movie. And, of course, as a result, some may be forgiven for connecting it to, of all things, Halloween. After all, look, Halloween is all about scary monsters, and we have some here. We have two fire-breathing witnesses and one really ugly, beastie monster. Halloween's about death, isn't it? And we have dead bodies here lying in the streets. And Halloween's also about blood, right? And we have men here who can turn water into blood. So perhaps one might be forgiven for making some kind of a connection between Revelation 11 and Halloween. But yet, beloved, the fact of the matter is that any real serious identification between these two is just plain absurd. Halloween, if you think of it, represents silly season. Halloween is when sane people lose their marbles and crawl into the gutter of superstition. Halloween is little more than a satanic glorification of death, evil, and darkness. And as for Revelation 11, it shouldn't really be connected to Halloween at all, because it's about so much, much more. It shows you that Halloween actually only scratches the surface when it comes to death, superstition, and evil. And to see that, let's take a serious look together this morning at the first 14 verses of this chapter. I remind you that we dealt with the last five verses in connection with the seven trumpets. And so we restrict ourselves to the first part of Revelation 11 this morning. The theme is, through tribulation, great they came. As I was working on this sermon, I didn't quite know what to call it until suddenly the words of hymn 69, verse 1, came into my mind. And under this theme, we're going to speak about protected, persecuted, and promoted. Well, beloved, as we turn our attention this morning to Revelation 11, please remember that we are still dealing with an interlude here between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. And the first part of that interlude can be found back in chapter 10 about the angel and the little scroll. The second part, which we have before us now, is all about the two witnesses and more. Yes, and once again, it has to be said that this is a challenging part of Scripture. The imagery is as vivid and graphic as ever. The details are difficult. The interpretation is controversial. But yet I would say to you, it's not impossible. Once again, we may differ on who is who and what is what. But the main thrust of this part of Scripture is clear. And what is it? Well, we begin with the verses 1 and 2 and the protection of a remnant. 
John says that he was given a reed or measuring rod and told to measure the temple of God and its altar. And thereafter, he is also to count its worshippers. And next, he is to exclude, notice, the outer court, which has been given over to the Gentiles who will trample on it for 42 months. The first question here is automatically, what about this temple? Is it real? Is it symbolic? Is it past? Is it future? What is it? Now, there are some who believe that this is about a real and a new temple in Jerusalem. You recall that the old temple, the second temple, was destroyed in 70 A.D. Today, there is no temple in Jerusalem. On its site sits the Dome of the Rock, one of the holiest shrines of Islam. And so there are those who believe that the Dome of the Rock is one day going to get demolished, and that a new and final temple will rise in its place. And that it is now this temple that John has to measure. But is that so? I am among those who seriously doubt this. From my perspective and the perspective of a lot of other commentators, the language is symbolic here. And as a result, John is not writing about a real bricks-and-mortar temple. He's writing about another temple. A temple not of stone, but of flesh and blood. He's writing about the church, the people of God. How often does the New Testament not call the people of God the temple? Of God. And now John is to measure this temple and its altar. What does that mean? Well, to measure something off means to set it apart, to demark it, to take stock of it, to protect as well as to safeguard it. So the first thing that John sees in this vision is the temple standing for the people of God being kept safe and preserved. But why is that necessary? Well, look again, for notice that the outer court, the outer court is not measured. But that it is given over to the Gentiles and they will trample on it for 42 months. And the implication, beloved, is that everything outside the temple and the altar is to be left unprotected. That indeed it will be trampled upon and ravaged. That it will endure much distress. And this distress will last for 42 months. Here in Revelation 11, we are told about 42 months. Notice also in verse 3, about 1,260 days. And later on in verse 11, about three and a half days. And again, do not take those numbers literally. They're symbolic. Yes, and together they all point, you can say, to an incomplete period of time. They're all half of seven, which is the number of fullness in Revelation. Three and a half days is half of seven days, a week. 
42 months is half of 84 months, seven years. So 42 months here represents an incomplete period of time, an imperfect span of time, often linked to evil and trouble. Yes, and notice during this time there will be trouble, great trouble, and the trouble will especially come to the world. Everyone outside of the inner court of the temple will know distress and disaster, trouble and sorrow, turmoil and tumult. So when will this be? Again, some would restrict it to some coming future period of time. However, I believe it's symbolic of this age and of the time between the ascension and the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, today, all of those living in the outer court, so to speak, are often the targets of terror. This unbelieving world, and you see it all the time, only seems to know tumult after tumult, earthquake after earthquake, volcanic eruption after eruption, flood after flood, calamity after calamity. But during it all, the saints know protection. God keeps them and preserves them. And that doesn't mean that the saints or the children of God are exempt from all sorrow and suffering, not at all. But it does mean that God will keep them, will strengthen them, will help them, comfort them, and see them through to glory. You and I, may at times feel as if we are going through the ringer. But we shall be preserved. And so as our text opens, it speaks first of all about the protection of the saints. But then next notice, it speaks about the persecution of the saints. Verse 2, 3 opens, and we are introduced to two witnesses who will prophesy during this in between period of 1260 days. They're called olive trees and lampstands. So who are they? And what are they? Again, some insist that they are two special people who will suddenly make an appearance before the end of time. But I would say to you, however, in keeping with the nature of the book of Revelation as a book of symbols, that these are not two identifiable people. But that rather these two witnesses stand for the testimony or the witness of the church. Notice they're called witnesses. And what is the task of a witness but to bear or to testify to the truth. And there are two of them. Because in the Bible, the witness of just one person never counts for anything. You need two witnesses to convict someone. 
And besides that, they're also called two olive trees or two lampstands based, as you perhaps have figured out in what we read in Zechariah chapter 4. In the Old Testament, an olive tree represents Israel. In the New Testament, a lampstand represents the church. So if you bring it all together, these two witnesses represent the ongoing witness of the church during this time. And what an awesome witness it is. It has the power to obliterate its enemies. If anyone tries, verse 5, to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. Doesn't that make you think of the prophet Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 1? King Ahaziah sends a captain along with 50 soldiers to arrest Elijah. And later he sends a second captain with another 50 men to arrest the prophet. And not hearing anything, he sends a third captain with yet another 50 men. And what happened? The first two captains and their men got, young people would say, zapped. Fire from heaven consumed them. And that's telling you, watch out. The Word of God can barbecue you. But it can also do more. For John refers to the witnesses shutting up the sky, and again, isn't that what also happened in the days of Elijah when he prayed and the Lord shut the heavens for three and a half years? And John also refers to water turning into blood, and isn't that what happened with respect to Moses and Pharaoh in that first plague in Egypt? So what's the upshot of all of this? It's never think that the testimony of the church and of its servants has no power. Because John reveals through the Spirit that it has great power. Power to send judgment. Power to control things above and below. Power to transform hearts and lives. Yes, and now this powerful testimony, notice, attracts opposition as well. John suddenly sees a beast coming out of the abyss. And this beast attacks the two witnesses. He overpowers them kills them, and leaves their bodies lying around. A rather gruesome picture, to say the least. And we ask again, who or what is the beast? We read about it here in Revelation 11. You can read about the beast again in Revelation 13. If you want to dig a little bit deeper, you can go all the way back to Daniel 7 and read about the beast again. So who is it? You may know that for many years the common view in Christendom was that the beast is the Roman Empire. But the Roman Empire has come and gone and has long been history. So that view is no longer being held. 
But instead, I would say to you, the prevalent view today is that the beast is antichrist or some really bad demon being unleashed by the devil. And here again, there are many people looking for a specific person. But I would direct you in the direction of the beast being every anti-Christian power that seeks to destroy the church and the people of God. You see, the beast represents, in a way, all who hate and despise and who persecute and who murder the saints. The beast stands for all the evil powers during this period in between the ascension and the return of our Lord that despise and attack God's people. And the result? Slaughter. Slaughter happens. John sees bodies, bodies littering the streets. Littering the streets, he says, in the great city, which, he says, is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt. That's another gruesome way of saying that the beast is allied and involved with places like Sodom and Egypt. And you know, in the Bible, Sodom is the den of iniquity. That's the place where the grossest of all the gross immoralities happen. And Egypt is the place of bondage and servitude where there is no freedom or liberty. And as for Jerusalem, the great city, it is allied to these awful places. What was once the city of God has become the city of the devil. Once God lived there among his people in the temple. Once it was the center of the earth and a magnet for God's people everywhere. But in John's day, it lies in ruins destroyed by the Romans. It's people put to the sword by the tens and hundreds of thousands. In any case, when now the citizens of this world see the bodies of these two witnesses... They throw a huge party. We read in verse 9 about men from every people, tribe, language, and nation gazing on these bodies. Only they do not gaze upon them in sorrow. No, they gaze and they gloat. These bodies are ridiculed. They are refused burial in order that many can come and see them and insult them and jeer at them and kick them and spit on them. They're going to let them rot in public. And as they rot, the celebration goes on and on. The booze flows. And the dancing begins. And the watchers are giddy with excitement, bubbling over with enthusiasm, thrilled with the outcome. 
They even send each other, it says, gifts. Santa Claus is coming to town. And again we ask, what is this? This, beloved, is the unbelieving, God-denying, God-hating world persecuting the church and the witness of the church. This is the fury of the world and the devil being unleashed against the saints. It's persecution time and party time. And how often has it not been? Is it not today? And will it not be in the future persecution time and party time? You know what happened not so long ago to those Coptic Christians in Egypt? It was no accident. What happens to believers in Pakistan, Iraq, and Afghanistan is no exception to the rule. Every day, there is a new persecution story somewhere in the world. And those who bear witness to the truth of Almighty God are constantly being targeted, imprisoned, killed, and gloated over. The morbid parties of the persecutors go on and on and on. Only, they will not go on forever. And they do not have the final word. For look, John tells us these parties, they will go on for three and a half days. And that tells you they're not going to continue ad infinitum. That a limit has been placed on them. That one day they'll come to an end. That they'll be restricted to this in-between time. And then it'll end. It will really end. And what then? Read verse 11. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. And they stood on their feet. And terror struck those who saw them. So what's this? What's this telling us? This is John telling us that God is intervening. That God is interrupting evil. That God is reaching down to his people. And that he's inflating them and breathing into them and making them live again. Or if you want, this is God having the last laugh again. You recall Psalm 2? On earth the powers that be are busy flexing their muscles and making wild boasts about their great power. But all the while in heaven, God who sees this, he is laughing and chuckling to himself. And here in Revelation 11, it's the same. 
The enemies of God are gloating and assuming that they have finally gotten rid of the church and her testimony for good. No more pesky Christians, no more prickly preachers. We have won. But as the celebration reaches a climax, they're horrified to see these two witnesses rising from the dead. And just to remind them that this is real and they're not dreaming, they hear a loud voice from heaven and it's a command to the two witnesses, come up here. And up they go. And all can see them go up. It's ascension time, again. Only this time it is not the ascension of the Lord Jesus, but the ascension of his faithful witnesses. And this time, notice, the ascension is followed not by grace and gospel, but by judgment. A mighty earthquake rocks creation. A part of the evil city collapses. 7,000 people die. And there is terror all around. Yet mixed with the terror, somewhere in between it all, there's also tribute. It says, some give glory to God. And what is this a preview of But the end is drawing near. John says the second woe is over. The third woe is coming. In other words, the end is just around the corner. And so, beloved, what a picture. What a vision. Scary. But yet in the end, how encouraging. For what does it tell us? It it reminds us surely, and that's the, the main thrust of it, that in the most graphic fashion that the evil forces in this world, the persecuting powers of the earth, the prince of darkness over this world, that none of them can silence the testimony of God's people. Indeed, how often has the church of Jesus Christ not been written off in history? There are many occasions in which the powers that be figure that they had rid themselves of these bothersome Christians once and for all. They're finished. They're gone. They're toast. That's what the Romans thought. That's what the barbarians thought. That's what the rationalists of the French Revolution thought. That's what Hitler and Stalin and Mao thought. We're done with them. Let's party. But the word of God says, think again. Jesus says to all of his followers, and that includes you and I, be faithful 
even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Hold on to what you have, so that no one will take away your crown. And him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. And to him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Our Belgian Confession in Article 27 puts it like this. This holy church is preserved by God against the fury of the whole world. And so, beloved, in spite of everything, we have good cheer. In Christ, you and I will overcome the world. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.